So today we're going to be in uh, chapter 1, verse, verses 2 through 11. And we're going to be doing this in-depth study of, of the book of James over the next probably 13 more weeks. Uh, remember that this letter, I talked about this in the first week, is a highly practical letter to Christians in the early church. It was written to the Jewish people that had just accepted Christ and were following Christ, and they were being um, they they were being uh, persecuted. They were out of their towns. They were they didn't they didn't live. The, the, these these people that he was writing to were, were scattered Jews, and 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 James is in Jerusalem writing to them to tell them, hey, this is how you're supposed to live. If you're a Christian, this is what you're supposed to value as a Christian. Now you, you, you don't follow the old law, you follow Jesus. And this is how you should live. And James emphasizes the applications of our Christian belief. That is why this sermon series is called A Portrait of a Living Faith. So today, we're going to get started with verse 2. We're going to do more than one verse today, though. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I mean, he starts out of the gate. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So we're to consider it what? You see... Trials are an opportunity for pure joy. And we, we have to stop and say, what? What is he talking about? I don't find trials. I don't find what we go through pure joy. So I'm not looking at it from a biblical understanding of what a trial is, if I feel that way. And... I actually think it's so funny how God works because he knew when my dad was going to die and he chose me to talk on the trials and finding joy in trials. He's an amazing God. He is amazing because he has ordained Everything. And you know, all the time, by the way, I I will tell you, the finding joy in this, from the get-go, from the get-go, when my dad come home from the hospital, me and my dad had conversations, and I would say, I would tell him, I think this is getting me ready for more diff, more ministry work. So I, be, I will be able to handle when I have to go to one of your family's houses to see somebody laying in the bed on hospice. God used my dad to get me ready for more ministry. And I think that's amazing. I think that's amazing that, that he allowed me to do that. And I will tell you this. The amazing thing is also that for 33 years of my life, me and my dad had a turbulent relationship. Lots of trials. For the last 20 years, 
we've had a great relationship. Not because of anything he did or anything I did, but because of everything that Jesus did in our lives. See, Jesus mended it and allowed us to have 20 years together. I think that's awesome. So, James has structured this statement in a way that gives us time to think about these alternatives before learning what he actually has in mind, you see. The command of James to consider trials as pure joy is challenging us to rethink what we would normally view as a negative thing. Because when something happens in your life and you have to go through it, you are not looking at it as pure joy, not right off the bat. You're not looking at, where can I find joy in this moment? Something happens, something catastrophic in your life, and you, you don't go, well, there's got to be joy somewhere in here. See, how many of us consider the tough things we go through as joy? But this is what James is asking us to do. He's asking us to find joy in our trials. This is because having our faith tested builds endurance. You see, to develop endurance, we must stand under hardship, trusting God's plan for our lives. Because if you say you're a Christian, by the way, you say in that statement, if you say, I'm a Christian... Okay, you are saying that God has ordained every single moment of your life. Every single moment of your life. He has ordained the bad ones and the good ones. He allows it to happen to you. He doesn't cause everything to happen. He allows everything to happen. We, we have a hand in causing A lot of stuff. He allowed it to happen because he wants to teach us. He wants us to learn. You see, if we want to grow, we must sustain this endurance or we will not reach maturity and completeness. See, in Greek, the word commonly translated perfect occurs twice in verse 4 of James. The first of these describes the work accomplished by endurance. The second describes one of the outcomes, that we would be made perfect or mature. See, our trials are supposed to make us perfect or mature. You pick the word you want to use there. We're supposed to be growing To what God has for us. You see, this word perfect captures this idea of wholeness and completeness rather than a moral perfection. See, James portrays perfection as being all that we were intended to be. You see, God God intends you to be a certain way. 
He's planned it for you to be a certain way. We are, Siri doesn't know anything. You see, he is, is, is creating us to be perfect. So he knows what he has. You see, James portrays perfection as being that we, what we were intended to be instead of a few fries short of a, a McDonald's Happy Meal. You see... That's what we are without these trials in our life. We're, we're short. We're not being made into completeness. We, we are not being chipped away at. You see, God, God is like this architect and he's got a piece of marble and you're the piece of marble and he's cutting you. I'm telling you, that hurts. The, the, another way of looking at it, that, like the, you're a piece of steel And he's going to shape it into something amazing. But to do that, he has to heat you up and hit you with a hammer to shape you. That is how God shapes you. He allows these trials, these tests, this stuff that we go... God, why? If I, I love you, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this to happen to me? Because I love you. And he goes, because I'm trying to make you perfect. I'm trying to make you the human being that I created you to be. And you fell into this trap of wanting to be like the world. But I've got better for you. I want to make you p- perfect. And being perfect doesn't mean we're going to be physically perfect. Spiritually perfect. See, God uses these trials and these testings of our faith in our lives as a means of building and growing us to completeness and maturity in Him. And what James is doing here is directing us to this bigger picture. A bigger picture and, and the important role they play as faith builders. How many can say, because I can tell you this, I have grown more in my trials. I don't grow when life's going easy. I'll tell you that, actually. I, if life is going smoothly, I'm stagnant. I think most people are. I think when life is not throwing you a curveball, you're just going along with the flow. See, at that point, you, you have this attitude. I don't need God. You don't actually say that, and you'd never verbally speak that because you're a Christian. But life's going good, so you start slacking talking to Him. You start slacking reading You start slacking on all the things because, hey, life's going good. I don't have time for God. I have time to spend five hours on my phone, but I don't have have time for God. I mean, we say, when am I going to have time to read the, the Word of God? You know how many times, if you've got a smartphone, you touch your phone a day? 
2,000. If you've got a smartphone, you pick up your phone about 2,000 times a day. And you don't even know it. Because you are addicted to it. If there's a ping on it, guess what you do? Pick it up. But you could pick up your phone 2,000 times a day. And by the way, millennials pick it up even more than that. Okay? That's what we old people do. The millennials, they've got us beat by far. We watch more TV than them, though. So, it evens out. But then we say, man, I, don't, I can't even find time to speak to God. You think about this. You think about this. When you get up in the morning, you're on the way to wherever you're going. Say you, you, you're just sitting there having a cup of coffee and you've checked your phone and you're checking up on your Facebook and you're checking up on your emails. By the time you've done all that, you could have prayed for everybody in this church. Pretty scary, isn't it? When you think about it like that. We spend that much time on social media and other things that distract us from God. And I believe he allows these trials to come in our life because we're so distracted from him that he wants to draw us closer to him. The verse goes on to say this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, testing your faith, it's going, going to happen. It's going to happen. It's not not going to happen. So be prepared and be prepared to find joy in it. See, James is describing these trials as a process rather than as events. You know, I just went on a cruise and I love that. that I wondered why they always say in Jamaica, no problem. Right? And do you know why it is? Because there is no problems in Jamaica. There's only situations. See, you can handle a situation. We don't handle problems very well. We could learn a lot from that no problem statement. And it's not even biblical. It probably it is biblical, but it's not, it doesn't come from biblical roots in Jamaica. They probably was high when they thought, hey, no problem. But, but it, is, it means there's no problems only situations. Maybe if we looked at all these things that come into our lives as situations to handle rather than problems to fix, we would handle them a lot better. See, see, James here is recharacterizing trials as the testing of our faith, which in turn is going to build endurance. See, endurance will then lead to being made perfect a state James defines as being mature and complete, not lacking anything. That sounds like a pretty good place to be, doesn't it? Not lacking anything. See, that's our, our mentality too because we live in uh, a country that 
we think we lack some every minute of every day because we need more of everything. So our incentive for persevering in the face of trials is the growth and maturity that God brings about through them. See, the correlation James makes between testing of the faith and spiritual growth is consistent with the principle of testing we, kind, we find at work elsewhere. It's no different than our muscles. If we don't use them, they'll atrophy. Without exercise, they disappear. I can tell you, and it doesn't take a long time, because I watched my dad just disappear. Because he just laid there, not using his muscles. That's what happens to you if you don't use your muscles. You see, but working out by lifting weights, test the muscles, actually tearing them. It actually damages the muscles. So, our body works the same way as our faith is supposed to work. You see, it damages the muscles and then the muscle fixes itself, but now it makes itself stronger. So then when you go to lift them weights, you can lift them better. But then you push yourself a little bit more and it tears them again. It's kind of like the testing of your faith. You see? And each time it gets tested and you stand strong in God, your faith gets stronger. But guess what? The tests that God allows in your life will get harder. Just like weights have to go up. Being a Christian on this side of heaven is hard. See, we don't want to say that as pastors because then nobody wants to meet Jesus because we're going to tell them, you know, being a Christian is going to be hard. We live in a secular world. Of course it's going to be hard. People hate Christians. People hate lots of different people. It's going to be hard. It's not easy being a Christian because you're supposed to live a different kind of life. If, if, it's, if it's easy for you, if being a Christian is easy for you, you're doing a lousy job at being a Christian. Because being a Christian should be hard. Because just like Jesus, people are not going to like you because of your viewpoint. Just like Jesus, they're not going to... They're not going to want to hang out with you because you have different thing, beliefs than they do. Being a Christian is hard if you're doing it. Similarly, we strengthen our moral character as we face temptation and choose not to give in to our desires. The less we indulge our desire to sin, the more capable of avoiding temptation we become. See, if you struggle with something and you deny yourself that, as you keep denying yourself that sin, or that something that is a sin to you, it doesn't even have to be a, a sin that's for everybody. For instance, take alcohol. For, for some, drinking alcohol is a sin. For some, it's not. But, If you abstain, if you're an alcoholic and you abstain, it gets easier every day. 
It never goes away, 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 because you've always got that. But it gets every day you, you say no to the sin. If, if you are into whatever it is, you name it. If you're a sex addict and you're into pornography and you don't watch it, eventually you won't want to watch it because you'll train your body. It, you can do that with any sin. Me, food. When I am focused, I can make myself, and, and within two weeks, I don't desire the things I desire. And that's how it works. But as soon as you let that sin back into your life, man, it's going to come back ten times stronger than it was before because you've allowed it to grow and fester. You see, we have to train ourselves. See, the less we indulge our desire to sin, the more capable of avoiding that temptation will become. We will find that trials create testing. Create that we will find that trials create testing. Testing builds endurance. Endurance makes us complete. We'll become whole. Not whole the way you want to be, whole the way God wants you to be. A perfection. See, we 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 as as people look in the mirror and go, Wow, I want to change this, I want to do this, I want to do this, I don't want to lie, don't like the way this looks on me. We'll go, Oh, I want to change all these things, I want to dress this way, whatever. But God, when you look in the mirror, you should see a masterpiece. Because God created you. There is no flaws. Because God created you. You look in that mirror and you are a magnificent work of God. And if you look in that mirror and go, "Mm, I don't like the way this looks. I need to change my nose or my, oh, I need a, I've got one ear bigger than the other. That needs to be changed. You're saying, you are saying, God, you make mistakes because I'm not perfect. I need to go see a plastic surgeon to fix them ears because you made them crooked. But here's the thing is, he made you just the way you are. And you should look at yourself and go, wow, I am a masterpiece that God created. And he is going to continue to form me from the inside out. And by the way, beauty is an internal thing, not an external thing. See, and then James now is going to transition to a new topic. In verse 5, he's asking if there is anyone who lacks wisdom. We will find that in spite of a shift here in this topic, verses 2 and 4 nevertheless share a close relationship to verse 5. You see, we can ask the question, well, how? Well, verse 4 closes with the notion of completeness and perfection in the sense of the way it was meant to be. The way we were supposed to be until we allowed sin to corrupt us. See, James transitions to lacking wisdom then is a test 
of sorts. A practical example of the kind of things someone may be lacking if they are not complete. See, how many people in here could say, when I sin, I'm lacking wisdom? I think we could all say, when we sin, we are lacking wisdom. When we choose what God does not want us to have over what we want, when we choose what He wants, what we want over what He wants, we are lacking wisdom. It goes on to say this. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. See, you got wisdom? Do you have wisdom? The only way you can have wisdom is if you're in God's word, if you're talking to God, if you're listening to what God tells you and how God tells you to live. That is God's wisdom. See, James is asking a rhetorical question indirectly at his audience. Instead of asking, are you lacking wisdom? He asks if there is anyone among them who is lacking wisdom. Wisdom. See, the last direct approach frames the question more as a hypothetical. He's not directly saying, you're dumb. You see, he, James has a goal here to introduce the solution to a problem we have. He doesn't want to accuse anyone of being unwise. So he, instead of saying, you're stupid, here's what you do. He's saying, hey, is any of you out there lacking uh, wisdom? I'm going to tell you how you get wisdom. And in verse 5, James lets us know that that enduring trials will build our faith, but we have to have other spiritual needs like wisdom The great news news is that God will meet those needs as well. Instead of referring to him using a standard just expression like just God or Lord, James recharacterizes him as the one who gives to all generously and without reproach. See, this shift in names illustrates God's character. You see, God is not lacking or going to be upset with us for lack, us lacking something. He's not going to be upset if we lack something. You see, so we don't need to be afraid to ask him for the things we need, like wisdom. I think God would honor that every single time if you meant it. You see, James portrays God's generosity. He is willing to meet our needs and provide us with what we are missing. That is what his point is when he uses the wisdom. But God is, is wanting to give you everything that you need. I love the word need because it's not the word want. See, when we pray, we pray, guess what we pray for? What we want. 
Most of the time we pray for what we want, not what we need. Because to tell you the truth, most of us don't know what we need. But we definitely know what we want. You see, see, what James describes in verse 5 sounds great. All we need to do is recognize our need and ask the unreproaching giver and he provides it for us. Actually, though, there's a catch. Sorry, there's a catch. Things are not as cut and dry as they seem. You see, when James continues in verse 6, that we'll get to in a minute, and he repeats the command to ask in verse 6, he comes back for a closer look at the matter. And despite James' encouragement in verse 5 not to be afraid to ask, he offers a more sobering presentation of what is involved in verse 6. See, it's not just a matter of asking for wisdom. We must ask in faith. See, he elaborates on the command by offering a negative coloration. Asking in faith means asking without doubting. See, how often do you doubt that God is going to answer your prayer? How often do you think, well, maybe he's not going to answer that one, but I'm going to lift it up to him anyway? Because I'm telling you, if you're honest, you've prayed to God thinking, I don't think he's going to answer it, but I'm going to lift it up because the Bible tells me to pray to him, so I'm going to lift it up. But we don't have 100% true faith that God is going to give us what we need. Again, not what we want, what we need. Because as Americans, we think we need stuff that's actually a want, not a need. There's a, there's, there's a that, that, that's the coloration, color thing there. So, see, so, how does asking and doubting relate? James provides a practical illustration on the perils of doubting in the back half of verse 6, where he likens the doubter to a wave that is blown and tossed about. See, his conclusion is, if you doubt what you ask for, don't expect to receive it from the Lord. Think about it. Asking for something you doubt, you will receive, represents a huge contradiction. See, James further explores the notion of doubting by describing such a person as double-minded and unstable in all ways. See, have you ever read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? Well, you should. If you haven't, and, 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 and lots of people didn't say they had, you should read it. It's a great book. It's a, it's a fantastic book, isn't it, Andrew? Great book. It, easy read. It's actually got some comical stuff in there too. Uh, for when it was written, it was written by John Bunyan. I can't tell you the year, but it was written while he was in prison. Okay? And it's basically about his walk and how he came to Christ. Really, it's, it's his story, but told in a fictional story. And there's a character in there called Mr. Facing Both Ways. Okay? And Mr. Facing Both Ways could see... The merits of every opinion or option. But he failed to decide about which one was superior. So he could see both choices, but he didn't know which one to pick. That's a dilemma. 
Because he didn't know which one was the best choice. Sometimes we're like that. Every character in The Pilgrim's Progress is a bit of us in the characters. It, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing book. And it's amazing how he uses these different characters. And they're, basically their names are actually what their character is. So it is just amazing. And, but he fails to decide about which one is superior. And that is just like us. If our faith is determined by the arguments for or against something, we too will be swayed as circumstances change. So if circumstances are going good, we're, we're going to go one way. If circumstances are going bad, we're going the other way. Because we're not living in the wisdom of God. You see... Our faith and our confidence must not be built on our own understanding, but God's proven character. So are you lacking wisdom? Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. See, our problem is, If we get a problem, if you come up with something today and you have a problem, you're going to try and solve it before you go to God. And I believe if you tell me I'm not going to do that, I'm going to directly pray to God, I would say you're probably lying to me. And I don't have a problem with saying that because I do the same thing. Uh, Try and solve it myself. Oh, no, I'm getting bigger, deeper and deeper in a pit. Now I'm going to call on God. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. See, if we acknowledge him first... You see, this is what we need to do as Christians. We, if we really believe that there's a God that sits on a throne in heaven... If we really believe that, then we need to go to him first, not last. Not as a last resort, as a first resort. When we're struggling, we should go to him. I think this should be a great thing to implement, by the way. There's some married couples here, and married couples quarrel. I'm using that word because it's nicer than argue. But we quarrel sometimes. Okay, and wouldn't it be great if, 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 if when that quarrel started, we said, just let's stop for a minute and let's talk to God and, and grab your partner's hands and just lift up whatever the situation is to God. How long will you think you're going to stay mad? Turn to God first, not second. He goes on to say, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, we have fear versus faith. 
See, even though James describes God as being generous, giving to us without reservation or reproach, God still demands that we ask him in faith without doubting. See, James tells us that the person who asks and yet doubts is like the wind-blown surf, a double-minded person who is unstable in all they do. See, James warns us that if we ask in doubt, we should not expect to receive, receive anything from the Lord. I mean, asking in doubt can come in many several things. I struggle, and I'm not quitting sugar this week, but I struggle, I struggle with sugar. Okay? And, and it, is, it is my demon. Okay? But if I ask, if I go to God and say, God, help me with this addiction I have to sugar. Okay? And then I go get uh, ice cream from the ice cream shop that's, that's two blocks from my house. Am I really trusting God? No. It was like, I remember when my, me and my wife first came to church and she prayed for patience. And she wondered why... Uh, there was more annoyances happening in her life. Because God is going to allow stuff to come into your life because that's how you're going to get more patience. That's what happens. God's going to allow them ice creams and them cupcakes and all that stuff be put in front of me for me to trust him because if I really believe that I've asked for something and then he's going to allow me to be tested that way. To know that I fully have put my trust that he can help me. Take it completely away. But there'll be some work on my half. That I will have to do something. See, as we see throughout the, this book of, of James. We'll see the life of faith is not for the faint of heart. See, the life, the life of faith is not for the faint of heart. See, faith requires us to stand by our decision to trust and obey our Lord and Savior. Despite whatever storms might blow our ways, James makes this point clear using the negative example of a double-minded person. You see, we will see in verse 9 and 11, James is going to shift his imagery again to contrasting pictures of the lowly and the rich. It almost seems as if he is switching to a new topic again, but this Affirmation in verse 12 of the person who endures testing suggests that these comments about boasting relate back to the topic of asking in faith. You see, with, with the exhortations in verses 9 and 10, James overturns conventional wisdom regarding potential sources of boasting, confidence, and doubt. See, James... James's exhortation for the lowly to boast in, the, in their high position takes us off guard because it clashes with what the world says. You see, after all, do you know anyone who revels in the lacking of high status? Today we will use terms like disenfranchised or marginalized to describe such people as if they are cut off and set apart from the majority of people. 
You see, contrast these with the, the metaphors typically associated with those who have authority. Money. We call them power brokers, movers and shakers, or they are at the top of the food chain. See, in a few weeks, we will see in chapter 2 that our tendency is to defer to those with money or position. See, they are the ones who typically influence society, right? By contrast, the poor and the lowly are rarely shown the same respect as the rich. Instead, they are often treated as invisible or unworthy or our attention, or not unworthy of our attention. You see, this is the very kind of treatment that James is seeking to correct. See, so, so how can having a low position be a good thing? James answers by illustrating in fleet, how fleeting nature, uh, ne- the fleeting nature of riches. You see, any confidence we have in wealth instead of in God is not only misplaced, but doomed. James does not say that wealth is bad. Nowhere does it say wealth is bad. He does offer any comment He doesn't offer any comment in that regard. His point is that just as wealth is fleeting, so too is the stability it offers. Nevertheless, the shift from valuing wealth and position over people most definitely undermines the prestige of our society. Assigns to them. You see, our society says the more you have, the better you are. See, that's why the Bible flips everything on its head. Because Jesus himself says you've got to become the least. To become the greatest. But our world says you have to have the most to become the greatest. See, conversely, it condemns our treatment of the poor as mistreated. If we accept his teaching on these matters, it must be reflected in our values. How do we treat the poor? How do we treat the underprivileged? What are we doing to help? See, our actions should match our belief. Particularly our mistreatment of of these people. See, why, we have to ask the question, why are the rich to boast in, in their humiliation? James writes as though it is only a matter of time until their seemingly perfect world falls apart. Everybody remembers 2011, November, September 11th. Well, the Twin Towers, and what happened after that? The market crashed, like it not crashed for many years. Do you know what a lot of people did that was in the market and they lost everything? They commit suicide. Because their faith 
was in their bank account. Not in the God that gave them that for that short period of their time. You see, that's what happens when we put our trust in something that isn't God. We make it our God. See, hoarding or leveraging riches to gain position or influence over others provides no guarantee for the future. Just as the harsh sun can wither and scorch the grass so that its flowers fail, the power and trappings of riches are short-lived and offer no long-term benefit. The first time I ever planted a garden... It was the worst summer to plant a garden. It was super hot. And I'd never done gardening before. So everything was and dried up. Like that. That's how frail your money is. You can have it today. And something catastrophic can come into your life. And you will have nothing tomorrow. So if your trust is in what you have in your bank account, what possessions you own, it's in the wrong place. It should be in the God of the Bible because he never dies. He is always there and he doesn't promise you an easy life. You see, the lack of position or wealth leaves the poor with little else to cling to but their faith in God. In practical terms, there are no competitors for their affection. See, if you have nothing, it's, it, it's a little bit easier for them people. It's not, they're not, I'm not saying all poor people are Christians or all people, I'm saying it's easier for them to have faith in something else because they don't have wealth or money to look after them. He goes on to say, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. See, we need to boast in what lasts. See, James compares the short-lived benefit of riches to the flower of the grasses. In the same way that the beauty of the Flower, the, the flower fails, so too do the luxury and confidence that we derive from riches. See, instead of placing our confidence in, the rich, in riches or positions, James wants us to direct us to a place, our confidence in that which lasts forever. See, so is, is James implying that poor automatically have strong faith, whereas rich people automatically lack faith? Absolutely not. He is not condemning riches as evil or something to be shunned. Not at all. See, instead, James condemns our apparently timeless human tendency to esteem the rich and treat them with difference. We will see this more later in his book. 
You see, we need to respect and esteem godly character in others. Yet all too often, we allow wealth and position to impress us. See, somebody comes in the room and they've got money and, we, and you see these people flock to them. And what's funny, if Jesus come into the room, I wonder how many people would really flock to him if they didn't know he was Jesus. See, James here appeals to the prototypes. They're like caricatures of the rich and the poor. See, his goal is for us to re-examine our own our own sources of confidence and boasting in light of our human tendency to worship wealth instead of the giver of all good gifts. See, as much as we might say that money doesn't bring happiness, we need to constantly check our practice against our supposed beliefs. As one of the greatest things about the gospel is its ability to flatten man-made Hierarchies. Yet for some reason, and despite the equalizing power of the gospel, we too often revert to placing people on pedestals because of their money, position, education, or a host of other things. And you see, God values all people because like I said earlier, all his people are created in his image. So it doesn't matter how big their brain is, how much money they have. He values them all the same. See, having an abundance is a blessing from God, especially the ability to enjoy it. Ecclesiastics 5, 18 through 20 says this, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the toil, toil with, with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and accept his lot and rejoices in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. See, we should be enjoying the fruit of our labor as a gift from God. See, we need to worship the creator, not creation. See, but there is also a darker side of money, especially an abundance of it. And it was described earlier in Ecclesiastics in verses 10 through 12. And this is what it says. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. Have you ever noticed people with money, they just want more money. How much is enough? There is no answer to that because they want more. Nor he who loves wealth with its income, this is also his vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. They increase who eat them, and what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of labor, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. 
See, money has a bad side too. It has a good side and a bad side. You see, although money might relieve certain pursuits, it quite often increases pressure in other areas. I just got finished reading a book. And do you know what? I didn't know this. But there's an amount of money that will make you happy. They did a survey. And do you know what that figure is? $78,000 a year. That is the money, that is, if you make more than that, you're not any happier. That is what they say is is the peak happiness. And it doesn't matter, when they did the survey, it didn't matter where you lived. You could live in a a place that had high rent or low, 78,000 across the board was the figure. But these people want more and more. See, it will relieve certain pressures. Obviously, we need money to pay the utility bills. Or if you've got a car, pay the car payment and the gas and the insurance. But, but to want more than you need and you can easily find out if you've got more than you need Just open your closet. It's a good place to start and go, wow, do I really need this? See, wealth can cause an abundance of worry and stress if our goal is maintaining and protecting it. See, Paul reminds us in 1 Timothy 6.10 that it is the love of money that is the root of all sorts of evil. Notice, he doesn't say money is the root of all evil, as some people will quote it. The love of money is the root of all evil, not money itself. You see, God has entrusted each of us with varying amounts of money. We are supposed to steward that money for him because it doesn't belong to you. You're looking after it for him. See, God wants us to be taken care of. See, when we act, though, as owners rather than stewards, that's when things get ugly in a hurry. When we think it's ours and not his, that's when we start making terrible mistakes with what we have. When we believe that everything we have comes from him, it helps us to live for him. And knowing that everything we have, by the way, as I'm doing my dad's funeral next week, guess what? Guess what he's taking with him? A suit that is going to be burned after his funeral with him. Anything else that he's bought throughout the years? He can't take that with him. I'm sure he didn't want to, by the way. But, just like they say, naked we come into the world, naked we go out. We can't take all them possessions. We can't take all that stuff with us. If you're not using your stuff to glorify God's kingdom, why do you have all that stuff? See, eventually the blooming stage of grasses is passing thing. Flowers do not last 
forever. See, similar disasters, bad investments, and unforeseen circumstances can have the same destruction effects on your wealth, no matter how much we might have. The key question we must ask ourselves are these. What are we investing in? What is it that drives you? Is it our passion and love for God or our passion and love for material possessions and gain? That is what James is saying. You see, based on this apparent human tendency to esteem those with wealth, another question to consider is, what are we doing with what we have? Are we showing it off to gain honor and esteem? Are we using it as a substitute for depth of character and relationships with God? Or, to put it in James James terms, are we a blooming flower about to be scorched? You know, you need to know, money is neither good nor evil. It is what we do with it that matters. So this week, I want you to read chapters 12 through 18 of James. So we'll get through the whole of, but the book, whole of chapter 1. Three weeks. That's not bad. That's not bad. We did three weeks. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you for today. Again, I thank you for all the fathers in this, wo- in this room. And, and I also lift up all the people that are struggling right now because their dad... It's not with them anymore. And you see, the older we get, the more that is the case. And just comfort those and encourage those. And like I said earlier to somebody in the church, remember all the good memories. Forget the bad ones. Hold on to the good memories And love God. Because he is amazing. Let us turn to him today. Give him everything we have. Trust him with everything we have. And go to him first, not last, when we're in troubles. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There's a truth older than the ages there's a promise of things yet 